Well, as Tom said, my name is Nathan Barzi. Um, I've been uh, had the pleasure of being with you in the past and, and coming in uh, and preaching. Um, it's been a while, uh, and so it's a real delight uh, to be back. So thank you uh, for for the welcome. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 32. We've been preaching through the lives of Isaac and Jacob this fall. Um, and one thing that we've discovered about that, that section of, of Genesis is that the stories are really long. Um, it's hard to break them down into, into small chunks, and so the reading of God's Word uh, takes longer. Uh, that might be a good thing. Sometimes it's good to just sit uh, and, and listen. Uh, so this is a bit of a longer passage, um, Genesis 32. Uh, it reads as follows. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies, and he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over the Jordan with my staff. And now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well, and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. <coughs> so he lodged there that same night, and took what came to his hand as a present, for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Where are, whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the droves, saying, in this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and also say, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him, with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. 
So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. <coughs> and he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jebath. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him. He blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel did not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. This is the word of God. Before we take a look at this passage, uh, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Um, we give you thanks uh, that we can begin our week um, by sitting under your word. Um, I agree with Tom. I pray that you would make our hearts good soil to receive what it is that you would say uh, to your people. Would you send your spirit to illumine the eyes of our hearts, the ears of our faith, that that faith would grow uh, as, we, as we sit under your word. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so for some of you, Jacob's story is familiar, but I don't want to assume that it is uh, for all of you. Um, I have skipped right to the climax of Jacob's story. This is the big turning point in, in Jacob's life. Um, if you've never read this, I'll give a little summary, but I'd recommend uh, go read you know, Genesis starting at about chapter 25, um, the end of his story, or the beginning of his story and the end of his father Isaac's is kind of mixed together. But from about Genesis 25 uh, to here, uh, it's a great read. Jacob is a lot of people's favorite character in the Bible um, because uh, he's so complicated, he's so flawed, uh, he makes a lot of mistakes. Um, one thing I'll just say as a general comment that we've said many times as we've preached through these passages. Um, you need to know when you're reading stories in the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament is not like the religious literature of most other cultures and religions um, because it doesn't contain stories about people who serve as examples of what you should be like. Um, if you read the Old Testament and try to find examples of people you should be like, you're going to be really frustrated and confused because uh, they're all a mess. Right, all at least the main characters. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all of them um, are just a mess. Um, the stories in the Old Testament are not intended to show you what they are like and then say, be like them. They're intended to show you what God is like. They're intended to show you the graciousness and the power of a God 
who works in amazing, redemptive ways in the lives of people who are a mess. Um, and that is meant to be an encouragement to you uh, if you ever feel like a mess. I don't know if any of you ever feel that way. I do from time to time. Um, so as I said, this is the climax of Jacob's story. Let me just give you the, the briefest of, of summaries of, of what's happened. Um, Jacob is Abraham's grandson, right? So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, this is the family that God has called um, and said, it's through this family, through these people, that I'm going to begin this rescue plan for the world. He's made them promises. Uh, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you land. Um, and from this line, you know, one day is going to come uh, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Right? This is where the Messiah is going to come from, this family. Um, so there's big promises attached to Jacob. Um, that's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know is that Jacob is uh, one of two twin brothers, and he's the younger of the two. Um, before he's born, his mother is told um, that the older brother is going to serve the younger, right? So contrary to the normal way things go in that culture, the older will serve uh, the younger. Um, when he's born, uh, he, he, and, he and Esau are born uh, at basically the same time, and, and he's actually hanging on to Esau's heel as he comes out. His name, Jacob, means heel grabber, right? That's where he gets his name. Um, but then as you read his life, uh, that name uh, bears out to be true in, in more ways than just literally. Um, Jacob is a heel grabber in the sense of one who trips people up. Um, he, he is one who becomes very adept at deception, uh, at manipulation. Um, despite all the promises that are attached to him, um, he is constantly scheming, constantly uh, manipulating uh, to get things to go his way. Right, So he steals uh, Esau's birthright um, uh, by demanding that Esau give him his birthright in exchange uh, for food when Esau is very hungry after a long day of hunting. Um, he deceives his father when his father is uh, close to the end of his life and, and going blind um, into giving him the blessing that's supposed to go uh, to Esau. Um, as a result of this, uh, Esau does not like Jacob very much. Uh, in fact, Esau vows to kill him, and Jacob has to flee for his life. Um, he ends up spending 20 years away from his home. Uh, he, he, he makes a, a journey of about a month uh, and stays with his uncle Laban. Um, there's great stories that, that come out of that. Um, this is where Jacob... Um, uh, is, is married uh, to two women, to Leah and Rachel, who are sisters. Um, that's a great story, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over that. Um, the one thing you need to know is that his whole 20 years with Laban, uh, he continues the pattern of manipulating and deceiving, um, although you might say it's out of necessity because his uncle Laban is every bit his equal um, as, as a deceiver, as a manipulator. Uh, and so it's kind of a 20-year-long battle of wits between the two of them. Um, and Jacob kind of gets the better of it. He, he leaves a very wealthy man. Um, God has told him it's time to return home. It's time to go back uh, to the land that I have promised uh, to bring you back to. Um, and, and so that's where we find him now. He's back, uh, heading back home. Um, as he says in this passage, he 
fled for his life with nothing, just his staff, and now he's coming back uh, with a large family, uh, with servants, with livestock. He's a very, he's a very wealthy man. Um, but he's also terrified because he knows he's going to face Esau. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, he doesn't know if Esau still has it out for him. Um, and so that's, that's where we find him uh, as, he's, as, he's, as he's coming back. Um, as we look at this passage, chapter 32, there's three things that I want to draw out of this. One thing is I want us to look at the struggle. Um, we're going to spend most of our time really zeroing in on these last you know, 10 or so verses, this very strange scene um, in which a man wrestles with Jacob. Um, I want us to look at the struggle in Jacob's life. Secondly, I want to look at the blessing uh, that he, he receives and the significance of that. And lastly, I want to look at the transformation that takes place in Jacob's life and see if we can understand it. The transformation that's so significant that it involves a change of his name. So we're going to look at the struggle, the blessing, uh, and, that, and that transformation. Um, this chapter has Jacob wrestling, struggling um, with his man, but as I've already told you, um, Jacob's whole life has been a struggle. Uh, his, his whole life has been one in which he has been fighting uh, and, and, and struggling. Um, he's always had these promises attached to him. Um, he would have heard about these from his father. Um, he probably would have heard about them from his grandfather. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Um, you can actually, you can, you can, you know, if you look at the genealogies and things in the Bible and do the math, you realize that Abraham, Father Abraham, right, um, he doesn't die until Jacob and Esau are about 15 years old, um, which is a significant chunk of, of life. That's long enough for Jacob to have heard the promises that God made about his family uh, directly from Abraham, right? Um, so he has always heard these promises. He would have heard, certainly from his mother, uh, the promise um, that his older brother was going to serve him. Um, and yet he has constantly lived um, as though he can't be sure, uh, as though he can't really be sure that God has made promises about him, that, that, that God is really going to take care of him. He has constantly lived a life um, that basically says, I have no father. I have no one who's really watching out for me, no one who's really caring for me. I have to do it all myself. I have to scheme. Um, I have to manipulate. The significant thing that we see in, in this chapter um, as, as Jacob wrestles with this man. Um, by the way, how do we know that this man is God? The, the, the text is super sparse, right? This is one of the beautiful things about it. It just says Jacob was alone and a man. Well, let me, let me read exactly what it says. Um, Jacob was alone. Verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. That's it. Um, doesn't say who this is, where he came from. Um, 
how, how does Jacob figure out that this is God that he's been wrestling with? He clearly knows that by the end. He says, I've, um, I've seen God face to face, and my life is, is preserved. Um, all the commentators say it's the fact that when it says that uh, when the man saw that he didn't prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. That word for touch is a very specific word, right? It does not mean he struck Jacob's hip, right? He reached out and, and hit it. It means like the lightest little tap, right? Little tap on his hip, and it's put out of joint, um, and he's got a limp uh, that he'll have for the rest of, for the rest of his life. Um, as he wrestles with God, in some ways, this feels like an interruption to where the story was going, right? Jacob was back on his way home. He's gearing up uh, for this confrontation with Esau. He's heard Esau is coming, and not only that Esau is coming, but he's got 400 men with him, right? This does not look good. This looks like Esau is approaching with a small army. Um, that's supposed to be the big confrontation, right? That's supposed to be the climax of the story. But what's happening here uh, is that we're being shown that the real climax of Jacob's life is this encounter with God. Because the real struggle of Jacob's whole life has not been the struggle with his brother. It hasn't been the struggle with his uncle. It's always been the struggle with God. It's always been the struggle to believe. Are these promises really true? Is there really someone out there who's taking care of me. I want to ask you if you can identify with that. All of us struggle with various things, right? We, we struggle with work uh, or with school. We struggle with our families, with our roommates, with our friends. Um, we struggle with ourselves. There's all kinds of, of struggles, and it's very easy for us to be um, tied up in them, distracted, go from one to the next. I want to ask you to consider, are there places in those struggles where the real struggle is with God? Where the real struggle isn't so much with your family, but with the God who has given you to that family and given you to them. And said, here, love these people and let them love you. Um, where the struggle isn't with your work, but with the God who has called you into it, at least for this season. Um, where the struggle isn't uh, with loneliness, but instead questions about a God who, it seems, has left you alone. Um, for how many of us are those the real struggles? See, our, our, the danger that we face um, as we face these different struggles in lives in our in our in our life and can get so distracted by them is that when we focus on on them and don't see the struggle with God that lies behind them in many ways we can live as functional atheists um, we can live as if there is no God no God behind any of this um, there's this great quote in one of Arthur Miller's uh, plays. It's a, it's a play, so this is, he wrote Death of a Salesman, um, but he wrote another play called After the Fall, which is thought to be his most autobiographical. Um, and in this play, one of the characters says this. He says, you know, more and more I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. 
When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover, then a good father, or finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now that there was a presumption, that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Which, of course, is another way of saying despair. One reason that this is such a huge turning point in Jacob's life. Um, here's something I didn't tell you about the past story. If you go back through Jacob's story, um, one thing is conspicuously missing until this chapter, and that is prayer. Um, Jacob never prays. He never talks to God. Even when God encounters him for the first time, there's another famous story you might know about Jacob's ladder. This is when he's on his way away from his brother. Um, and God repeats these promises to him. And even then, Jacob does not address him directly. He doesn't, he doesn't pray until here, until verse 9. Uh, when he prays this prayer, um, this is the first time that he has spoken directly to God. And it's a beautiful prayer. Um, it is a prayer that speaks God's promises back to him. That actually is a model for us. Occasionally there's examples. Um, prayer that speaks God's promises back to him. This is why it's good to pray with the Bible open, right? Um, the prayer in some ways has the structure of a penitential psalm. He acknowledges his unworthiness of everything that he's been given and just acknowledges that he's afraid, that he's in terror. And all he can ask for is deliver me. Please deliver me uh, from the hand of my brother. For the first time, he's clinging to God and clinging to his promises. Um, and that's what brings us to the blessing, right? Because it's in the midst of this wrestling match, as he's clinging to God and refusing to let go of him, that he receives this, this blessing. Um, <coughs> It is such a strange scene. I've already said, you know, it's very abrupt. It comes out of nowhere. This man wrestles uh, with, uh, with, with Jacob, uh, and Jacob understands that he's, that he's wrestling with God. Think about the condescension involved in that, by the way. Um, he knows that it's God because he's able to put his hip out of joint with a mere tap. That has to indicate to him, like, wait a minute. This wrestling match didn't have to go all night. This could have been over very, very quickly. Um, it's an amazing thing that God would lower himself to a form where there could actually be a wrestling match, where there could actually be a struggle, where he'd be willing to struggle with, with Jacob, um, where he would actually be the one saying, let me go. And Jacob would get to say to him, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not letting go of you. Until you bless me. There's something really significant taking place here for Jacob. Again, all of his life, uh, he has struggled for a birthright, uh, for wealth, for inheritance. He has he has struggled uh, for uh, for his wife. Uh, he has struggled 
to survive living in his uncle Laban's house. Um, All of his life, he has struggled for these different things. And if God has been in the picture at all, it's only been as a means to an end. You can actually see this directly if you go back to chapter 28, um, where God repeats these promises to Jacob directly. Um, The promises that God makes are completely unconditional. He just says, I am going to be with you. I am going to take care of you. I am going to bring you back uh, to this land. I am not going to leave you until I've done everything that I've promised. No conditions placed on it whatsoever. But the way Jacob responds, um, again, it's not so much a prayer. He just states, he says, well, if, in fact, God brings me back here, if, in fact, he takes care of me, if, in fact, all these promises come true, then this God will be my God uh, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll serve him. Um, it's kind of a horrible response. You know, to attach conditions. Um, but what it indicates is that all the way through Jacob's life, he's been using God as a means to other ends. If God will provide me with wealth, with security, with family, etc., then I'll serve him. But now for the first time, he's wrestling directly with God. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. He's finally realizing This is the one I was looking for all that time. This is the approval I was looking for when I thought I was seeking my father's approval. This is the beauty I thought I was looking for when I thought I was seeking the beauty of Rachel. This is the wealth that I thought I needed when I cheated my uncle out of all of his flocks. It's another great story that I didn't have time to to tell you about. Um, He's realizing The real struggle, the real blessing, is right here in the person of God. Um, I do need to say, this is important, there's nothing here that suggests that when God shows up and when you take hold of him and when you realize that he is the blessing that you need, there's nothing to suggest that that's a particularly pleasant and easy experience, right? It's kind of the opposite, right? The sun has gone down. Jacob is alone. It is dark. Lots of people have talked about this as being Jacob's dark night of the soul when he has to wrestle with God. It's a fearful thing. Um, And that's another question I want to put to you. Again, if you think about the struggles in your life, if you think about the things that are hard, if you think about the places where you feel most alone, can you see, can you hope, that God is working in those things. Not that the struggles, particularly the ones that come with real suffering, not that they are good in and of themselves. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible never asked us to believe that suffering is a good thing in and of itself, but it does proclaim firmly that our God is so powerful that he's able to do good in the midst of that suffering and that he does not leave us alone, that he is with us, He is near to the brokenhearted. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. It's very short. He just says, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I do not recommend Christianity. Um, Christianity is the truth. Uh, It is the truth that we all need. Uh, it, 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 It tells us 
of this God who works redemptively and has acted to rescue us uh, from our sins, from our rebellion, from our running away from him and, and after all kinds of other things. Um, but it's not necessarily a comfortable story uh, for, us to, for us to take. Um, the last thing I want us to, to look at is this, is this transformation uh, that takes place uh, in, in his life. Jacob walks away uh, from this saying, uh, I have seen uh, God's face and I'm still alive. Um, the word face is actually really significant in this, in this passage when, when he talks about sending the gift off to, to Esau um, in verse 20. Uh, the word face actually shows up three times, but it only shows up once in English because literally what he says is, I will try to appease his face. So this is verse 20. I will appease his face with the present that goes before me. Afterward, I will see his face. And then when it says, perhaps he will accept me, that's literally, perhaps he will lift up my face. Uh, so face is, is a big deal here. Um, but Jacob walks away knowing that he has seen the face of God uh, and somehow uh, has, has lived. Um, do you notice how God actually responds to Jacob when he says, I will not let you go until you bless me? The way he responds is by asking what his name is and then changing it. Saying all your life you've been a heel grabber. But now you'll be known as one who has struggled with God. And most commentators say that there's a sense of you've struggled with God and you've prevailed. Not that you've won. Nobody defeats God, uh, even in a wrestling match. Um, but you're still here. Uh, you've struggled with God and you've lived uh, to tell the tale. Um, and that name, which of course becomes the name of God's people, um, that contains a promise in it, right? It seems like a weird thing to say. You're one who struggles with God. That sounds negative. But there's a promise because what God is saying here is that I am a God who is going to be with my people, even though my people are going to struggle with me, even though my people are going to keep rebelling. Um, by the way, even Jacob, this is, this is the climax of his life. It is not all smooth sailing from here. He goes, he goes right back to making mistakes. Um, but this is just a characteristic of, of God's people, of the nation of Israel, of the church, of us. We are a God who, we are a people, excuse me, we are a people who struggle against God, and God is a God who has promised to dwell with us and to keep struggling, to keep at it. This is how God is going to relate uh, to his people. He's made this commitment to be a God who dwells in the midst of them. And one day, the day that we remember in this season of Advent, one day that commitment is going to lead God to be made man again, to take on flesh again, uh, this time not to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat, right? Um, but this time, Jesus is going to come uh, as one who is weak, who has put himself at a disadvantage. One who has the power to calm a storm with just a word, 
um, but who also refuses to take up the sword even as we are putting him to death. He's one who's going to go into his own dark night of the soul, alone, calling out to his father for blessing, but instead receiving the curse that we should have received so that we can receive the blessing that Jacob knew that he needed. It's all to the end that we all can receive a new name. The name of child of God, of beloved, of adopted. The last thing I want to point out, I find this really interesting. As significant as this change of name and this transformation is, you go through the rest of the Bible and God constantly identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and what, Israel? There are, there are actually a couple times when he says Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. I checked. There are two. But the vast majority, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though this transformation has take, taken place, he continues to say, I am the God of the heel grabber. I am the God that chose that one when he was a liar and when he was a cheat. Because these are the people that I want in my family. These are the people that I'm going to work with. These are the people that that I'm going to change. A transformation has taken place in Jacob, but no change has taken place in God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the God who one day will glorify us, who who is faithful to sanctify us, is also the God who chose us when we were his enemies. We need to remember that. We need to be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am thankful for the story of Jacob. Um, I, I I am thankful. Um... For this depiction of someone who has so many faults um, and who seems to only get it fleetingly. Uh, And yet you are faithful to him. And you're faithful to his family and you're faithful to his descendants. And because you are faithful to them, you are faithful to us. Because your faithfulness to this family meant one day taking on flesh as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, and being faithful to all the promises uh, that you made. We thank you that in Jesus we see what it means that you are a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and yet who doesn't clear the guilty. A God whose justice is perfect, but whose mercy is more. Uh, It is on the basis of that mercy that we come into your presence with boldness and confidence. It is on the basis of that grace Uh, that we pray that your spirit will apply these things to our hearts and work transformation in us. In your name we pray. Amen.